When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Britney when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Upland Podcast, presented by Onyx Hunt. On this episode of the show, we talk shotgun restoration with Doug Turnbull. Welcome back to the show for episode number 108. podcast is presented by onyx hunt creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters use the promo code pup20 to save 20 percent 
on your Onyx Hunt subscription today. The closer we get to bird season, the more pins that get dropped on my Onyx maps. I'm in there almost every day lately. Can't wait. Falls in the air. Don't be caught without Onyx. Know where you stand this fall. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, out in the field, how you prepare determines how you'll perform. With balanced fat and protein to support peak condition in your bird dog, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food enhances strength, energy, and endurance, so when that tailgate finally drops, you and your dogs are ready for anything. Strong, focused, ready for anything. That is a Yukonuba dog. And by CZ USA Shotguns, shotguns designed with the Upland Hunter in mind, I believe our shotgun design survey with CZUSA is still open. If it is, it's about to close very soon before we kick off round two where we narrow down the field of contenders and get one step closer to the newest shotgun designs that will be produced by CZUSA. Head over to projectupland.com, look for the shotgun design survey, or head over to cz-usa.com for information about all of their shotguns. And by Dakota 283 Kennels, use the promo code PU20 to save 20% on your next kennel purchase from Dakota 283. Kennels built to last a lifetime, one-piece rotomold design, frame steel door, everything you and your dog need in a kennel for a safe and successful hunting trip, dakota283.com. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Bob P. from Wisconsin. Bob sent us some feedback on the podcast. We had a little conversation, a little back and forth email conversation about rough grouse and woodcock hunting. And Bob inspired me to book an upcoming guest of the podcast that has been long overdue coming your way in the next couple of weeks. Looking forward to that. Bob received a code for our Audible book, Woodcock Shooting. Anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave the podcast a rating. Leave us a review in your podcast app. Subscribe to the podcast. Share the podcast. Send us some feedback or a guest suggestion like Bob did. You can email me directly at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. Still drinking my Gundog Grind Coffee. English Setter Blend. Good stuff. Keeps me alert and keeps these podcasts coming your way. Check them out on Facebook gun dog grind all right we're gonna jump into today's episode don't forget if you don't have time to keep up with all the articles at projectupland.com you can always listen to those articles via our project upland on the go podcast where we record a reading of all the articles upload those with each new article on the project upland website you can listen to them anytime anywhere project upland on the go podcast Check it out today. All right, we're going to dive into today's conversation with our guest, Doug Turnbull of Turnbull Restoration Company. Doug's been in the business of shotguns and shotgun restoration for decades. He's picked up a thing or two about vintage shotguns along the way. We have a fun conversation about shotgun restoration, the things that they do at Turnbull. We chat about some of the vintage American classics, up and birds, guns. Fun stuff today with Doug Turnbull. I hope you enjoy this one. Let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Project Upland podcast of Turnbull Restoration Company, Doug Turnbull. All right, Doug, welcome to the Project Upland podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's good to have you here. Yeah, looking forward to it, Nick. Uh, always look forward to, to talking about the, the things we do and have seen over the years it's not the worst way to start out a thursday talking about shotguns is it doug no it's it's always a joy and uh you know it's 
you know, people are always interested in, in the different things we've seen and done over the years. And uh, yeah, I look forward to sharing it with you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I certainly get to talk about shotguns probably more so than I than I should. But you, I would imagine, that's that's kind of an everyday thing for you, isn't it, Doug? It really is. Uh, we've <laughs> you know, we've uh, we've been pretty blessed here with with what we've done over the years. You know, been doing it through the through the eighties uh, and actually into the seventies, eighties, and uh, you know, seen a lot both in uh, you know the quality of stuff, uh, you know, the the changes in the acceptance of the restorations over the years uh, you know how we've gotten rid of and, and done different things with with clients and that and uh, yeah yep. it's, it's, it's been fun been a, been a great great ride well let's lay some groundwork Doug for the folks that myself included that don't wholly understand what you do at Turnbull Restoration tell us where you're located and if somebody came up to you on the street and said Doug what the heck do you do what would you tell us well, we're located 25 miles southeast of Rochester, New York. We're upstate New York people. Uh, New York City is about six hours from us, so we're we're a long ways from that. Uh, I grew up in a gun shop, Creekside Gun Shop. Uh, Mom and Dad started it in '59. I came along in '61. Um, it was the largest specialty gun shop in the Northeast, and they had a lot of buying power. And it was the place to go for hunting, shooting, you know, hunter safety courses, you know, and on and on back back in, in, in the days. I uh, uh, started getting into the restoration work kind of late 70s, early 80s. Uh, after college, really came into the shop and, and really started pushing the restoration and more and more enjoyed the restoration over the, the retail side. Um, okay. Uh, and kind of went from Creekside to Doug Turnbull Creekside to you know, Turnbull restoration. Well, Doug Turnbull restoration to Turnbull restoration. Uh, we've we've gotten into both restoration work, uh, some new modification uh, of uh, you know building custom guns. You know, taking a shotgun and, and taking a V V grade Parker, turning into A1 specials or C grades. Uh, you know, a lot of our clientele was was getting into doing upgrades, uh, both upgrading the finishes. You know, taking a a Del Grego recolored gun and restored gun and then putting Parker style colors back on it uh, or you know somebody was doing upgrades uh, from just a field grade LC Smith to a, a higher grade whether it's a you know just a trap grade or a, uh, all the way up through the a deluxe grade so we've seen all that stuff over the years through the 80s and 90s uh, mostly 80s and 90s late 80s early 90s uh, but we're, in a nutshell, what is Turnbull Restoration? We specialize in the accurate recreation of historical metal finishes on period firearms. And it's our goal to take whatever it is and restore it back to make it look as close to what it would have looked back in the day. And it may be better you know, better metal preparation, uh, but it's it's the details. It's recutting, engraving. It's getting the polish lines as right as we can. It's putting the right colors, case colors on them, whether it's Parkers on Parkers or LC Smith or or Foxes and, and that. You, you try to put the right finishes back on so when it's complete, it looks as close as we can to what an original did when it was, you know, born back in the 
you know, the 90s, or, you know, 1900s, when it was yeah. born back in the 1900s. I'm going to branch out here a little bit. Well, you had early early exposure to guns. Did you did you have early exposure to hunting? Was hunting a part of your life from an early stage? Yes, it was. Uh, my, my father did did hunting, not a whole lot. Uh, he was more into his, his flying and fishing than the hunting side. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we, we did hunting, both whitetail deer down, you know, Shot my first deer at, at 13 down in Pennsylvania with a rifle of 308 back when we could. Uh, I've gone up to Quebec with my father flying around in his uh, 185 amphibious Cessna. Uh, you know, wow. looking for, well, fishing, but moose hunting. Uh, sure. We never, did, yeah. never did get anything, but we had, had a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, the pheasant hunting. Till mid seventies, uh, mid yeah, probably mid seventies around here was really good, and then it just kind of collapsed. Um, so, you know, I'd, I'd kind of haphazard, you know, you'd, you'd catch a, a pheasant or push a pheasant up, but uh, uh, it was, I guess, my bird hunting that was kind of limited uh, until kind of later in life. Um, but yeah, it's it's been fun. Sure. So when I look at when I look at the website and I, I see ads for Turnbull all over the place and magazines and stuff and I oftentimes see American guns and I'm sure that's not by accident but it, there's no is there a separation do you do work on guns from all around the world or do you do you specialize in American guns how does that play out? Yeah, uh, for for shotguns, uh, actually most all of them, uh, we we pretty much specialize in American firearms. Uh, okay. Whether it's the lever actions or American side by sides, um, but pretty much uh, U.S. guns. Gotcha. And so you got into into the retail side of guns, and that was part of it. And then you began focusing on the restoration. Were you? Did you come up through gunsmith training? I mean, can you do all this work yourself? I, I mean, I have to imagine you're pretty handy with with a gun. Yeah, um, yeah. The the training that I did, a lot of it was, you know, I've most of my training that I, I've done is is really show me how it's done and I'll do it. Um, okay. I never went to a gunsmithing school. I didn't go to Trinidad. Didn't go to Colorado School of Trades or the Pennsylvania. Um, gunsmithing program um, so I'm not formally trained but it's because of the contacts through Creekside I've been able to go to a lot of the manufacturers and it's you know just show you know show me uh, so I'll watch and see how they did did something and, and take that home and incorporate it into how we do or you, you talk to somebody it's a, a tool and die maker oh so that's how you use that equipment how can I use that in in a restoration yeah uh, so it's it's more of a hands-on and talking to other other craftsmen on, on how they do things. Yeah, you've been around it for a long time. I imagine you've got a you've got a team of skilled folks over there. How, how big is your team? Uh, currently, we're 16 employees here. Okay. Um, and uh, I want to say about nine of them are on the bench doing work. Uh, we got a lot of support staff, um, both shipping, receiving, paperwork. Uh, you know advertising promotional stuff uh, and uh, you know I've been been fortunate my, my daughter and son-in-law uh, are are now in the business uh, son-in-law has been here got about nine years uh, he knows how to do all the finishes and, and all that work and uh, they're working at kind of taking it over and, and bringing the, 
in a sense, a third generation you know, into the into the field. Yeah, that's excellent. How has how has your business been affected over the past few months with everything else going on? Uh, the past past few months, we've you know we've been affected like everybody else, but uh, you know we we got shut down around the sixteenth of March, uh, as everybody did in in New York. Uh, I myself uh, went from not really doing a lot with the actual finishes to to now I'm doing all the finishes: color case hardening, charcoal blue, rust blue. Um, you know, working with and just I guess. You know, I've been doing the finishes. Steve's been doing the paperwork, doing the shipping, and receiving, and, and that side. Sure. So we've we've figured out how to how to make changes here as, as we've had to, and, uh, and and it's working okay. Yeah, uh, we survived through through the whole thing. The employees finally were able to get back. I want to say mid May, uh, and they were chopping it a bit, looking to get back in getting back to a normal life and you know we're, we're moving along okay everything's yeah. uh, kind of back to normal well the doors are open and the lights are on so that's a good start doug yeah exactly <laughs> you mentioned the parkers foxes lcs people doing upgrades of field guns as, as part of your business and I'm, i've always been kind of intrigued by that because I've seen, I've become familiar with some of the vintage guns. You know, I haven't been around it for nearly as long as you have, but I've seen people take a Fox Sterlingworth and make it an A grade or a C grade or a B grade. And when did that become a thing? I mean, was it, was it obviously after a lot of these guns were made, manufactured, produced, then sort of their, you know, their history and the love affair began with these guns. And now you're in a, in a place where some folks might not, re- you know, they realize, hey, I'm probably never going to find a an A-grade Fox for the price that I want to pay, so I'll upgrade it and get everything I want. Is that kind of the, the motivation for those types of people? Yeah, it really is. It, uh, you know, Peckmeyer did an awful lot back in the, I want to say, 70s. Um, Peckmeyer you know, was a, a great company uh, out there and, and did a lot of upgrades. But, you know, people are doing upgrades for a number of different reasons. One, they can't find it, so they, they build it, and they can build it for a whole lot less. Um, and there's a price point there. Um, two, they they want a fancy gun, so you either build a custom or you do an upgrade to make it look like an original. You know, and there's there's two different ways of the the, the upgrade. You either building a, a custom engraved gun or do you try to match it as an original gun? And, and some of the people, you know, they want a they want a high grade Parker or uh, or Fox, and you know, send it to the engraver. Uh, get it get it restocked. Get the now you have dimensions you want, so you can actually shoot the gun. Yeah. And then you you have it engraved in the the style, whether it's a custom grade, custom engraved gun, or try to match an original factory pattern. And when it's done, you've got a whole lot less than a an an original gun in it. But you take that gun, you go out and use it, hunt it, shoot it. You know and you know put your memories into that gun and uh, so there's many different reasons why you know the upgrades and uh, and customs yeah there's something to be said about a gun that you already own you know maybe the person has already had that sterling worth for a couple decades and they they have memories already and they they know what they have they know what kind of quality they know what kind of shape it's in so making the leap to make the upgrade there is is it's an easier leap to make i would guess than going out trying to snag something yep 
Yeah, trying, you know, and it's it's tough, you know, especially now. I've got some clients that, uh, you know, buying double A Parkers or A1 Parkers and they'll take it to the swamp and go shoot a duck or <laughs> or a pheasant, you know, and it's, and people are like, how can you do that? Well, if you can afford it, the right. gun, you can, in a sense, afford to take it out and use it. And it's just like anything else. You don't take your, your, your old car and go drive it in a, in a snowstorm. You don't take your old, you know, your, your original Parker shotgun or whatever and run it out through the, through the snowstorm. Right. You, you take it out on a bluebird day and you're careful with it. So it's, yep. it's just kind of what it is. Do you do any buying and selling of guns as Turnbull, or are you a collector yourself? Are you in that at all, or no? Uh, we do get into the buying and selling. Uh, okay. I, if my father never really had a big collection, I never really got the bug on that. To, you know, so it's it's more buying and selling. I do have a, some representative pieces. Uh, what's nice with the the vault and and now with the camera is you either have something that's nice in the vault that you can look at or you've you've got good photos so you can you can show the guy this is this is what it's supposed to look like sure um, yeah yeah so you so i won't find as many guns as out there as i would if i as i stopped down to see our mutual friends at puglisi's here in duluth right yeah and you, you go <laughs> in and see you know troy and and tyler and, and john at puglisi's you know they have a broad spectrum whether it's, yeah. you know, you want to see Parkers, it's over here. You want to see Smiths and Foxes, it's over there. You want to see an English gun, here's another section. Um, yeah. And they have an incredible array of quality, pluckable firearms that if, if if you want to see what something looks like, and here's, you know, here's the place to go. And, uh, yeah, go go see Puglisi's. They're yeah, it's funny. We were talking about that before we hit record, and that's—it's just funny to me that that's in my—it's in my backyard. And I think I've talked about it on the podcast a little bit before. I just—I always knew about it, but I'd never gone down there, and it probably wouldn't have made the same impact on me not having the appreciation that I have now for vintage guns and and what they actually carry. So going there in the last couple of years and having Tyler show me around—I mean, it, there's there's a wall of this and a wall of that. I didn't even—I didn't even get to look at all the English guns. It's—it's it's hard to see them all. Yeah, hard, yeah, it is. And then you come back in, in a month, and now you've got these, you know, get the new ones. Oh, yep. what did <laughs> yeah. you get? This is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're always traveling around and, and buying and selling. And, I mean, they're they're the first people I call if I'm looking at something or my curiosity is piqued by, about something, I, I'll shoot Tyler a message and find out. But, yeah, for anybody interested, they're, that's a, it's a good resource for sure. Yes, it is. All right, so... I want to talk a little bit about I want to talk about the dive into the restoration process a little bit. On your website, this was something that I had mentioned on the podcast a number of times because it was we had talked about it when you were you were supporting the podcast. People can go to turnbullrestoration.com forward slash upland. They can get a look at a complete restoration process on a Parker shotgun. And that that is essentially that's muzzle to buttstock. I mean, it's everything. Do you guys do stock making too in that case? Yes, we do. Uh, we okay. have a one-to-one pantograph that uh, old, old, old Don Allen pantograph from Minnesota. Uh, so we're able to turn stocks. We have a, a great supply of wood, and uh, we can give you if you're building, you know, your, your own shotgun. You know, we can give you the dimensions you need. And uh, sure, makes a difference. 
do you do do you do stock fitting or gun fitting for folks in that area, or is that something they would typically have go see somebody else for? Typically, they would go and you know, somebody else do it. Um, you know, see them for you know, give us the dimensions. Okay. All right. So if I if I go to that website, TurnbullRestoration.com forward slash Upland, you see a picture of a Parker shotgun, and then you can kind of dive into you kind of dive into the the process and it's the way it's laid out here it's basically days one through 15 so i'm going to touch on each one of these sections and have you we'll, we'll see where this takes us a little bit but i'll have you talk about kind of these steps in the process and i am curious the way that this was laid out and done is this a standard process and that you would pretty much always do it in this order if you're going for a complete restore so Day one, it's it's making the new buttstock, which you just kind of talked about. You got it on a machine. You've got a set of dimensions that you're working with. That's step one. Yes, it is. Um, well, kind of first off, it's it's really going through and making sure everything works on the gun. Um, okay. Mechanically, that everything is, is sound, and, and so you're not getting back into having to to fix something mechanically. Right. Um, but once you've once you've got something working and, and it, it's all straight, yeah, then you get into, you know, here we have, uh, you know, starting with the original stock, we're, we're fixing it, and it's nice to use an original stock if you can, because the tangs are different in, uh, between guns. It's, it's not like a Winchester lever gun, that the tangs are basically exact from gun to gun to gun. So, get it all put back together, you know, I say a broken stock, and then... Uh, so we're, we're gluing it back together, making a great pattern, which makes the rest of it working. Okay, so the you mentioned the it's a the Don Allen Panagraph. This is or duplicator, right? Duplicator, yeah. Okay, so tell me a little bit about how that works. I mean, I can envision it, and I can see some pictures of it here on the website. Tell me about how that works and how close it gets you, because I imagine there's some hand finishing there at the end. I've I've actually pulled up that web page so I can see okay all the pages as we're going which cool makes it easier as we're talking yep so you know day one we've got the you know we're making our pattern uh, now we're taking uh, that pattern laying it out uh, we've got um, the su- little supports on either end you lay it out on your your block wood you get rid of as much as you can you put it into into the duplicator. Um, so you've got your pattern on one side and your, your chunk of wood on the other. So you see a step yep. four, you know, they're in there ready to go. Uh, you've you've kind of dialed it in. You've, you've checked it with the with the stylus and the cutter that uh, you're, you're not missing anything. You know, you get to step five. You can see the uh, the duplicator really is, is set up. You know, you've, you've checked left, right, up, and down. And then it's you, know, you turn it on and you kind of rough it in. You get it you, you get it close. From there, you're changing out the tool bits uh, for the outside profile to get it closer and closer, and you'll be within, you know, twenty-five thousandths of okay. the original stock, depending on what dimensions might have to be changed. So, how how manual is it to use that machine? Just because I'm I'm not familiar with at all with it. I is it? it it's all manual. It's um, all manual process. Yeah. So that so there's like. So there must be some guides in there that are guiding along the old stock? Yes, you've got, you know, in, in step five, you see the cutter on the left. Yep. You know, and then you, you see the stylus on the right. And depending on what the cutter is and the stylus, you may use uh, kind of a, a blunt nose or a bullet nose, kind of a rounded nose uh, stylus. 
and the cutter is going to be either you know a rounded cutter or, or straight depending on what you're going you know you you get to doing the inletting so you'll start changing the cutters you'll again you're you're starting with a you may have a, a cutter that's a, a, a 375 thousandths diameter cutter but your stylus might be 400 thousandths so now you're getting down there close yep. and it's it's the closer you get and the less you're actually taking you can get your cutters closer and closer so you'll get into the final cut and you might be five thousandths undersize and your cut cutter compared to your stylus uh, you never you know never and always is always a, a, a tricky thing you know sure but you, know, you, you never take it right down to zero uh, because there's just differences between you know the, the the original stock and the pattern and if you bump it things can you know now you just you took an extra cut at 10,000 so you the cutter is generally always a uh, little underside compared to the stylus and yeah. you can get it close um, from there once you've got your stock all turned out now you're really getting into the hand fitting and you know, the hand fitting and scraping is what what takes the time um, you know you, you can you could take a stock from a big old blank and there's people that do that or you can take and get it down close um, once you've once you've got your stock in the pantograph and you're working it you're hour and a half to depending on what you're doing two hours of machine time which can save you you know hours and hours and hours of just uh, chipping away at that big chipping block. away and you yeah. know you know taking a, a cutter and, and you know filing and cutting and, and everything else so it's if you see day two kind of you know all the parts are out of the gun yeah you're, you're slowly putting it together you're, you're putting it on you've got your die you're, you're scraping the piece uh, and you get it to step four where you got good head contact, uh, good tang, tang contact underneath to the, to the stock. Yeah. And it's just, it's slowly taking your time. You know, if, if you go along to get about, you know, step seven on day two, now you're, you're clamping and you're pulling the, the action into the, into the pattern. And you're you're really checking your inletting, and even though you're you know as you're doing that, things will change and they'll move a little bit. Sure. Um, but you can pull it in and get it awfully awfully close, you know. And and so now you've you've got through stop eight. Things are all inletted. They're they're tight. You got great uh, you know contact uh, of the action to the wood. You got your screws in. Uh, you've you've set the barrels on. You you now you're learning. You're figuring out where your uh, your final dimensions are going to be because the stock is oversized. Yeah. Yep. So now you're getting into a files and rafts and and cutting hacking and you know working at removing uh, the rest of it. Uh, you know you may have some fluid leaves you got to cut in. As you can see on step seven, and that's yep. just a, yep. a slow process. You can. You can do so much with the machine and maybe get them halfway close, but then it, it's scraping, and uh, you know it's it just it's just time-consuming scraping them in. Yeah, it, it's interesting. You know, you start on that uh, almost going back a little bit to that pattern maker where you have you know the old stock and you're using that machine to get you really close. And dimensions are one thing, but the actual the feel of a gun, the width of certain parts of the gun, you know, that would all that could all be like 
ingrained into the mind of the person that owns that gun so it's it might not seem important on paper but when that person grabs that restored gun that's that's really important it, it is and um what's really interesting is you'll see it you know you'll, you'll see that the stock kind of developing as you're as you're removing uh what doesn't need to be there it's like well you know and, and you hear that that same well how do you know how far to go or what to do it says well you just remove what's not what doesn't need to be there and is and it's little things that you can feel with your hand but you can't see with the eye yes yep um and it's it, it, it's weird i mean you can rub your hand across the barrels and, and feel a, a, a dent that you can can barely see you can run your hands across the stock and it just oh here's a flat spot and here's a little high spot you know um and it's your, your hands will tell you a lot more than your eyes. Yeah, that's very true. I, I even have, you know, again, I, I haven't been around this stuff that long, but I've been messing with shotguns for a little while here, and I've had some, actually had some work done to one, and, you know, you can, like, even in the wrist, you know, a couple very small changes in the diameter of the wrist can really change the feel of the gun, how sleek it feels and yeah. how it feels in your hand. And, like, just like you said, you can feel it way more than you can see something like that. Yeah, it's, um, well, my, my 475, uh, my Winchester 1886 and 475 when I built that, um, I just slowly worked the, the stock down um, until it, it, it just felt right and, and pointed right. And it, so I got a lever action that shoots like a shotgun. And, you know, it, it's little things and it just, it's taking your time. Uh, yeah. I know that when you're working with a, these, these wood blanks, you're obviously managing the moisture and humidity because we all know wood can take on water and it can move and stuff. How critical is that when you're when you're working with these things? Do you get it to a point where the stock is not moving much? You got the humidity level down far enough where you don't have to worry about that because dimensions are kind of a finicky thing, right? If this stock is moving around, like that could make it real hard on the stock maker. Yeah, it is. Uh, what we do with our wood, we'll, we'll buy the wood and uh, we'll put it in our our case coloring room so we have you know big swings in temperature and it's warm but we have some big swings in temperature of you know 40 50 degrees and uh and we'll leave it in there for you know a year is it is going through and, and cooling and uh or drying i would say cooling yeah yeah um and we really try to get it down to you know in the eight percent uh eight to maybe ten percent as we're going and it makes a difference uh, as, as you're stocking everything. Um, that you really don't get the movement. You've, the the wood has has cured. It's it's been cut for maybe five or ten years before. But then we get it in, and you run it through the the hot and cold, hot and cold, and uh, it really helps. So those temperature life. swings that seasons and ages the wood even more to reduce that movement. Yeah, it, it does okay. seem to. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So then I, I clicked on and moved on to day four. We've essentially got you've got the stock made now as we as we got into at that other part, you're beginning to fit the fit the action, fit the barrels to that stock and start to put the pieces together. Uh, I just I was uh there was a chat box that comes up and I just wanted to tell my daughter. <laughs> Go away. <laughs> I I think I got that too, actually. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> so, 
Uh, yeah, so we're, you know, so once it's headed up, and you've got kind of the dimensions, and you're 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 really pretty much happy with that. Now it's starting to put the guts into it. So you know, you, it's it putting the hammers in, it's putting the sears in, it's it's fitting the top lever spring, it's you know, fitting piece by piece by piece as you're going. Um, and it, it is a slow process, uh, you know, you, you got to cut out so that the bolt will come back into the front of the stock. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, and then you just got to make sure that everything is actually happy together. I mean, you know, if it's a, right. a single trigger, you've got different issues than a double trigger gun. Um, you know, it's, it's fitting the, the stanchion for the, the safety and getting that in. So that, I think sometimes it takes as much to, to fit all those, those parts than it is to, to try to deal with just getting it headed up. You know, getting yeah. it headed up is pretty straightforward. It's, it's making everybody else uh, happy inside and, and working. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, when we talk about these vintage guns, they were all, they were handmade. You know, they weren't coming off of an assembly line, and certainly they were models, and they were made to be somewhat standardized as best they could, but how much, how much variance do you see from, you know, from... Fox Sterlingworth to Fox Sterlingworth, and again, that's that's where you need somebody in there trying to just fit everything together. Each gun is individual, right? Yeah, each each gun is individual, but uh, they they seem to go with pretty standard dimensions um, okay. from gun to gun, unless yep. it becomes and you get into the high grade, uh, becomes much more, uh, you know, through the record. The higher the grade, the more time is spent. They're, sure, and they're going to tend to get. Uh, custom dimensions and some of the custom dimensions are pretty wild i've seen it in uh, in winchester lever guns uh, we had a uh, model 76 that you know there was four different guns within a serial number range and it was a consecutive number and uh, you know one was a 12 and a half inch length of pole the other was you know 14 and a half inch length of pole one had extra drop that looked like a uh in a, a black powder muzzle loader a right you know, black oh, yeah. powder rifle had the, the big drop so we've we've seen even in the lever guns which typically you don't see with some wild dimensions and you see some wild dimensions in the shotguns um, and typically the higher the grade the the more the input is um, and it's kind of no different the higher the grade the, the more you're doing a custom gun the more you're doing an upgrade the more they tend to have specific dimensions yeah how much stuff or work do you do with barrels you know i imagine you see barrels with dents in them with pitting you know what are the things that what are the things that happen to barrels that you can and do work on uh some of the things with the barrels you know it's, it's raising dents uh you know bulges you can only do so much with uh, but dents we we raise a lot of dents uh we have a uh a barrel honing machine, so we're able to polish the inside of the barrel and remove pits. Uh, uh, we get into chokes of opening chokes. Okay. Uh, ribs need to be, you know, stripped and relayed and, and put back down. You know, we do that. Uh, work with Damascus barrels and browning and blacking of, of Damascus barrels. Uh, we get in because we have an in-house engraver. It's it's recutting the the lettering or the engraving or, or, or whatever it's you know so once it's polished and uh, you can put the, the original markings back on yeah uh, we, we check wall thicknesses 
so you, you, you know, and, and chamber lengths. So we're able to do basically all the all the barrel work, as well as if somebody had a second set of barrels, we could we could fit a second set of barrels. Sure. To okay. What what does the dent raising process look like on that? Because I've I've heard about it being done, but I can't even really imagine or envision what you do to yeah. raise a dent on a steel barrel. Yeah, dent raising is you know you can use either some uh, kind of hydraulics to raise it, uh, and. It, you know, you, you kind of get in there, and you can raise them so much, but you've got to be careful, and then you, you add a little pressure, and then you, you tap on the outside, and it helps raise the dent. So it's, um, it, you know, or we've got, uh, you know, plugs that go in that uh, as you, you get them in, you can you can tap them and expand them. Again, you have you can only expand them so much, then you've got to use, uh, use something to kind of work the metal and get it to bounce back out. And then you add a little more pressure and you know get it out and then when you're you finally got basically for the most part everything out then you get into just a little honing on the inside and sometimes some some dressing on the outside and either blend the blue or like this one here you went through and uh, you know polish the whole the whole barrel and then uh, go go for blowing from there how deep is too deep on dents? Let's just say, for example, somebody's you know they're at their gun shop looking at a vintage gun, and they they look down the barrels, and they can if you can see the dent on the inside of the barrel. I mean, is that too deep, or what's the what's the limit there? Uh, I guess it, you know what's the limit. It's really hard to say. Each dent, well, you know, most dents are just you know banged up against the the, the bumper on the car. Or bumped yep. into something else that you can see it, but it, it's minor. Uh, we've taken out some that are are really pretty deep. Uh, you can only work the metal so much um, be, before you get into you know overstressing it. And, uh, so there's, there's there's not a cut and dry, but you can you can raise some some pretty deep you know pretty deep ones. Have you ever had just on that on that note a little bit? Have you ever had a gun come in that you just said, you know, we can't fix this, or, I mean, uh, maybe you've had a gun come in that was restored that the client said, this isn't a shooter, you know, I'm not going to shoot this, but do you ever run into issues where somebody, they want to bring something back to shooting quality and it's just not there? Does that ever happen? Yeah, we've, we've had guns that come in that, uh, that are just, just tired. Somebody's gone through and done refinish or, you know, kind of partial restoration that you really look at it and, uh, you know, the the barrels are shot, and that's the hard part with a with a shotgun is yeah. You, you, it's not easily to replace a barrel like it is on a on a rifle. So it, it all comes down to the barrel. If the barrels are good, you, know, you can re trip and relay the ribs and, and put them back together. But if the the walls are thin, um, there's not much you can do with it. If if they they have no choke, you know there is some. You can go and, and and have thin wall tubes put in, or, or this or that. So there is some options for for chokes, but uh, uh, if if the barrels are are whipped and shot and just wore out, the only thing you can do is is try to find another set of barrels and put yeah. on them, or have them mono blocked, where they they cut it off basically at the chamber and put new tubes on, um, and that's expensive also. Is that the same as when? Like I see it on English guns a lot when they say this has been sleeved. Is that what's what? Is that what's happening? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Or the other thing is, you know, Briley does a, a really good job of uh, putting titanium tubes inside. So you take a 12 gauge and it pushes it down to, you know, a 20 gauge. It's usually two okay, sides. Okay, yeah, down. I have heard that. Yep, I've I've read about. I think I read about that in one of Steve Smith's book, actually. Yeah. I I see that a lot. Like on English guns, it'll say this has been sleeved, and my mind always goes to like something, an insert inside the barrels. But then I had heard that it's actually. It can mean, you know, completely new set of tubes, essentially beyond the beyond the block. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, you know, day day five, step seven. You know, you can see where the uh, yep where, where the that, that that front little portion where the, uh, the the vent rib kind of starts. Yep, yep. Somewhere about there, they would cut the barrels off. Okay. They would machine into the chamber area. Um, a sleeve that would go down in so it'd be kind of a, a stepped step type sleeve so yeah that would in, that would insert you would join those be like almost like a male female yep cu- coupling there yep and then then you seal it up obviously yep. and it did okay. did that a lot, a lot with damascus barrels <clears throat> you okay. know the whole idea was you know thought was damascus barrels weren't weren't good and it's you know, who knows if it's proven right or wrong, but, you know, people are shooting Damascus barrels with lower pressure loads and, and everybody's fine. So back, back yep. in the day, back in the 70s, you know, geez, you'd have to cut these barrels off. You'd put, you'd sleeve them, which they did a lot of over there in, in Europe. They'd sleeve them. So you take 12 gauge back to 12 gauge. Now you got, you know, something with thick enough walls, get the length and the choke that you want. And, you know, you know you're back to... Uh, using this gun again yeah i think i heard it recently uh kirby hoyt was on a podcast talking about damascus barrels and he was alluding to the fact some of those same things where they were folks were they questioned damascus barrels quite a bit in the past but perhaps time is now showing that maybe that was some of that was unwarranted yeah yeah and i'm not there's there's good Damascus and there's bad Damascus. There's sure, good yeah. carbon steel and there's, you know, better carbon steel. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You get into some of the, you know, the peerless Whitworth steels and uh, you, know, you can just tell as you're working at it that's a higher tens- tensile strength than some of the, you know, the, the real low end stuff. So. Like everything else, there's plenty of variation. It's hard yep. to, like you said, it's hard to say never and always. <laughs> Never and always, boy, they made a, uh, an L.C. Smith collector, and it's like, they never did this, you know? It's like, they never did that. It was always this way. And and we go, um, well, what about this one? Well, you know, that's just an anomaly. Okay, yeah. you know, they always, you know, they, they never had flutes on their shotguns. Well, what about this one? You know, this, this is a, you can obviously tell it's a factory gun. Well, you know, so... Never and yeah. always, and that's it's one of the kind of little jokes that we have here. You know, ne- never and always <laughs> will get you in trouble at some point. Yeah, exactly. If you're stripping, relaying ribs, doing barrel work, you must you must have to dabble in barrel regulation. And and do you have do you have to fire all the guns that you work on? Do you have to test them? It, it's interesting. Back in the, the '80s and that uh, late '80s, uh, we. You checked them mechanically, but you really didn't get into shooting everything. And we've have really since have have gotten to the point we we actually have to shoot everything, uh, make sure it does work. Yeah, uh, it's interesting how time, times really kind of change as you go. Sure. 
do you do I, I guess on that note before I'll, we'll we'll slide down this process a little bit but do you do inspections on guns or is that something that you would folks would normally send to their regular gunsmith i guess yeah, we, we do inspections we do you know i guess in a sense pre-buy inspections um, okay you know and it's what we see is a whole lot different than the, the normal gun shop uh you know sure. we see the differences in finishes you know we we see you know we, we we know what to look for we know what to look for uh you know ribs that might be loose or you know, is this original finish or not? Has it been changed? Um, you know, what? It's it's like buying a car, or buying an airplane. You know, you go to the expert that understands it. Uh, yeah. You know, I've had guns that we've opened. To, you know, geez, somebody's buying an A1 special. Says, oh, geez, here's this great gun. It's eighty thousand dollars, and you know, well, you know, send it up to Turnbull and have him look at it. I'll open the case and shut. Literally, open it, look at it. Okay, shut the case and, and tell them you don't want it. Oh, well, why? You didn't look at it. it. Says it's an upgrade. It's been restocked. It's this. It's this. It says, but you only looked at it for ten seconds. It says, okay, you want me to really look at it and really tell you? Uh, and it's no different. It's you know, yeah. you, you take your car to a you know to trade it in or, or whatever, and, and, it, and the salesman goes, well, that fender's been painted. How can you tell? It says, well, stand here and look. Says, you see the color differences? Oh, I see it now. Yeah. Um, it, you know, the, the door has been changed. You can see it's not sitting right. It's, yeah, the experts know, and it doesn't matter what it is. Whether, I mean, there, there's stuff that you do that you're an expert in because you've seen it all the time, and you just walk up and you go, oh, that's not right. And I'll go, well, Nick, what are you talking about? Okay, well, let me explain. <laughs> no, exactly. Now that I asked the question, it, it makes total sense that given your expertise and the things that you and the people that work with you see every day, I can envision a certain buyer, client, looking at a particular gun. They say, I'm, I'm bringing this to Turnbull because I need to know without a shadow of a doubt whether or not this is an original gun or it's had work done, that sort of thing. So yeah. That makes, um, it, that makes total sense. And even because the serial number says that it's in the book doesn't mean that that's the original gun with that serial number. I mean, yeah. I've, I've seen that change. You know, there's there's certain guns that if, if you talk to a to a dealer or collector, he says, oh, yeah, there's, you know, I, I know of, of three with that same serial number. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> um, it just, unfortunately, that's what's happened over the years, and you put enough money on something, and somebody's going to do something. And, um, and, the other side is you're in love with it because you found it. Yes. I really don't care. It just doesn't sound yeah, right. You're, you're it, neutral. Yeah. It, it, it just, it's just another gun. So I, I look at it differently and you know, yep. It's a neat looking gun. Yeah. Okay. Well, and if you see something that's wrong, if you see one thing that, that doesn't look right, you, you tend to dig into it. Well, okay. This, this this proof mark doesn't look right. Well, okay. Well, wait a minute. No, this this isn't right, or that's not right. You know, and, and then you you start tearing tear, it apart, and it's you know, if you find the first fly on it, if there is one, and then yeah. you dig from there, and you'll now that the flies start coming out of the woodworks. So I've got 
two dynamics kind of playing in my mind, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. One is that, and maybe I'm just totally wrong, you can definitely tell me, but you know, the, the people that are interested in, let's say, vintage American shotguns, that pool of people is shrinking. It's going down. There's less and less people that I think are interested in these guns. Now, we still have lots of collectors out there, for sure. The flip side of that is the value of some of those guns. You know, they're not making them anymore. The value is going higher and higher. And what I'm curious about it on are your thoughts is what are you seeing in that in that space? Are you seeing more people trying to mess around and pass off a gun as an original that isn't or are you seeing less of that because there's I mean I mean there's still a market for vintage guns, don't get me wrong. I mean that's for sure, but I guess what what do you see when when I bring that up? Well, it, it, it's kind of interesting because if, if you really look back at, you know, all the collectibles, you know, um, you know, you could you could have bought an A1 Special back in the late 60s for $1,000, which was a lot of money. You know, sure. So 1000 is $10,000 back then in kind of today's money. Those, you know, people were buying that stuff and probably were getting, you know, crazy deals in comparison just because people weren't looking for the side-by-sides, they were looking for the pumps and autos. Um, it's it's kind of, you know, the, 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 the cost, you know, and it doesn't matter what it is, but, you know, so a lot of that stuff was bought up when it was, per se, cheap or inexpensive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, none of that was cheap. It was inexpensive in, in today's comparative dollar. Uh, a lot of the the collectors back then were you know 30 40 years old now they're getting to be you know 70 80 years old you know they've had the stuff for years and years they're getting out of it um, it's getting tough for the next generation to get into you know you've, you've got to be with the height with the high condition guns it's harder and harder for the average person to probably get into it unless they fall into it somewhere Yep. Uh, good guns, good original, high condition, sell, and it, it doesn't matter whether it's back then or, or today, um, and it doesn't matter if it's a gun or anything else. Um, you know, condition sells, rarity sells. Uh, documentation is is important if you can, you know, you know who, you know, who owned it or the history behind it and uh, documentation is always important um, people are getting smart um, I don't see the upgraded original guns that I did through the the 90s and 2000s um, being built they, they probably are I, I just don't see them being built like they used to be built um, you know, there was a, a couple different people throughout the country back, you know, 90s, 2000s, early 2000s that were building up a lot of stuff uh, and filling the voids. Uh, we don't see that ourselves. Um, I'm sure it's still being done. Good, good gun sell. And, yeah. uh, you know, and there's, a, there's a lot of money, you know, you know, there's a lot of people that their their fathers and grandfathers, you know, that they're passing away and the money's kind of trickling down back through the uh, through the cycle of generations and those people remember the quality of stuff that dad had or the grandpa had and either they're 
keeping their collections or their you know and, and just going out and, and buying more good guns to go with it yeah that's interesting and i i certainly value your perspective on that because that's you know i'm a casual observer and i look at guns and i I have a Fox Sterling worth in the safe behind me, and that I bought from a friend, and I feel like I, I got a really good deal on that gun, it compared, especially compared to some of the listed prices I see for guns of lesser quality. You know, yeah. I knew what I was buying. It's good quality. And so I kind of have the same thing where I would I would love to own a Parker someday. I really would. But when I when you go out and look on the open market, and you know, the other thing is seeing prices on Guns International isn't necessarily the same as what that gun is selling for. You can see the listed price. That's one thing, but they're quite expensive. As you said, it's hard. It would be tough for somebody. And I'm, you know, I'm in this stuff like over my head. I've, I'm passionate about it. I love this stuff every day. It would be real tough for somebody that's they're even they're more of a casual gun collector, upland hunter to make that leap into something like a Parker. So, but I've always chalked that up to if I own a Parker, I'm probably going to have to stumble into it. I'm going to have to find the right person selling the gun at the right time to me. Yeah. And the other thing is the internet has made everybody an expert. Uh, Correct. Yeah. You, know, yeah. you, you look back in the eighties and nineties, uh, you know, gun list and gun, you know, yeah, it was gun list back in the day, you know, and it was, it was paper ads. So it was, was hard to easily compare well what you know this is what it looks like in a picture this is what it should sell so it, it's made it harder and harder for dealers to, to to make a higher dollar because they're able to buy it from an unsuspecting person now everybody seems to have an, a better idea what the value is so sure. um, you know the, the dealers myself it's like god it you know it, it's tough to find something out there i can make a buck on you know, I've got to make 10% as, as, as opposed to 40%. Yeah. Um, and it's across the board for everything. It's not just guns. Um, right. Yeah, it's the information age. We all, yep. all, and I'm, I mean, I grew up with that. So that's, before I do make any purchase decisions or anything like that, you know, I've spent who knows how many hours on the internet researching and reading internet experts, you know, yep. in, in quotations for sure. But it is a good way to obviously, you can cover the bases, you can get a foundational set of knowledge so that when I do come and talk to somebody like you, at least we can be on more of a, more of the same wavelength, but there's like everything else, there's pros and cons to it. Yeah. And it's, uh, and it's interesting because, you know, there, there's dealers and collectors, there's collectors out there that actually, you know, it seems like they know more than I do about something because, you know, they've become the expert in, in that particular model and and able to, and, you know, able to absorb and bring back the information. You know, that I, I, I love my brother-in-law, but I hate him because he is so good <laughs> at remembering things and people's names and everything else. And it's like, ah. I wish I had that knowledge. And there's, yeah. the, you know, the, you people you talk to that, oh, geez, L.C. Smith, L.C. Smith field grades, you know, they made this many and this this yeah. many 12 gauges and this many 20 gauges. And in this, this time period, it's it's the baseball or football, you know, fanatics. Yep. You know, January 1st, the, the 37, they, they threw a, a touchdown. You know, this is... This is the cue bag, the quarterback, and this is the re- reception. This is the game. This is the score. It's like, okay. Yep. It's the same thing. 
Yeah, well, that may be one of the reasons why I started recording some of these conversations, Doug, so that when I want to know what Doug Turnbull told me about vintage guns, I can go back and listen to it. Oh, great. Smart <laughs> <laughs> <Right>, man. <laughs> uh, we're not necessarily going to continue going through this entire process, but I do because we get into stock refinishing, checkering the buttstock, engraving, that sort of thing. I, people can kind of can kind of visualize that you can take a gun from from start to finish and bring it back to its original condition, or even better, you can upgrade it. That sort of thing. I do want to talk to you about color case hardening because that's something I've talked about before, and there's there's something real unique about it in that when you're restoring a gun. A factory finished Parker, the color case hardening on that was going to look different than a Sterling Worth or an LC Smith. Correct, Doug? That is correct. Uh, each manufacturer had a different look or a different process, um, and I don't know if it was the factory trying to change it or the as they were messing with it and the individual at that time that's the process that he came up with I, right. I don't know um, but yeah there's yeah you know, we everybody talks about color case hardening um, back in the day you know you know some of the, some of these guns had very mild steel in it so they had to use a, a heat tree process um, and back originally it was a color case hardening it was a bone charcoal process uh, and you You'd, you'd have your polished parts. You'd you'd pack them in in a in a vessel and you throw it in the oven, cook the heck out of it for a couple hours, uh, quench it, and in essence, the the byproduct would be the, the case colors, and, and you get some hardening of the steel. You know, is times changed? So you you went from a couple hour process to you know the war came along, and you know. In manufacturing processes changed and uh, you know so you'd go from a bone charcoal to a cyanide heat treat process which is liquid so now you've got you've 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 got a turkey you're taking your so and just envision this you have a turkey you throw it in, in your oven and you cook it for 15 minutes per pound and you cook it this 20 pound turkey for three hours, I guess it is, and you take it out and it's done. That's bone charcoal case hardening. Now you've got your deep fryer. <clears throat> your deep fryer. <clears throat> your deep fryer is a cyanide process. It's you know molten cyanide. It's sitting there. It's cooking away. It's your deep fryer. You take that same turkey. Your action. You stick it in in your your your, uh, your your hot oil. Yep. Now now we're going back to turkey. So you, you, you stick it in the hot oil at 350 degrees and you stick it in there and it, it cooks and bubbles away and 10 minutes later it's done. You pull it out and here you are. Yep. That's the easiest way to explain the differences between bone charcoal and, and cyanide. Um, and manufacturers change the process over the years, they weren't they weren't building a they weren't trying to duplicate colors. They were trying to increase production, right? Um, more so than than anything. Uh, that's kind of the differences within the bone charcoal. Um, 
depending on how you do things, how things are mixed, how 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 long, how you know, you'll get Winchester colors, LC Smith color. Winchester, LC Smith are kind of the same colors, and you get Parker and in, in some of the uh, the um, Fox colors. So it's it's like two different colors, uh, but it's through the process and in how how it's done. Yeah. Um, but it's. It's it's the time, you know. Is uh, is Fox Fox kind of went from doing uh, bone color to a, a cyanide process over the years, and you know you look at H and R, and those colors are different. So it's it, it's a changing of of the process for manufacturing and, and cost and time. Yeah, it's like you said when those original processes were created they weren't necessarily created i mean they may have thought about the aesthetics of the gun but they weren't necessarily thought of as doing it a specific way to make the gun look a specific way it just they were what they were but those colors became true to that platform so the fox colors became fox colors parker colors became parker colors so fast forward to today and this is just for for, for folks that wonder why you know what what's the big deal about color case hardening but now today, if you're going to restore a Fox or a Parker, having accurate, period correct case color case hardening on it is an important step because if you have the wrong colors on a gun, it's going to totally throw it off. So that's where you come in, Doug, and you've had to reverse engineer. I imagine you yeah. know we, we, we won't get into specifics here, but you've figured out a way to reproduce what those particular colors are, and that's an important step in the process. As well as you know, one is. Geez, you did it. Now, now, how can you do it time after time? Again, yeah. Or getting into yep. a production run, whether it's you know, a, you know, production run for for one of the manufacturers. Uh, sure. You know, now you've got a, a thousand pieces you've got to do, and they've all got to look basically the same. You know, we've done some production runs on Winchesters and Colts and U.S. Firearms and and Remington and that, and it's uh, now you've got to make them look the same. Yeah. Well, I think we I think we have definitely talked a good deal about a lot of the different things that you can do at Turnbull. We've covered we've covered much of that, but if people if people have questions, they're curious about they've got a gun, they're not sure what they can do with it or should do with it, what's the best best way for them to get a hold of you, get more information, how should they go about that, Doug? Uh, you can get a hold of us. You can, you can get a hold of us uh, by calling at 585 585- Six five seven six three three eight, and the web is turnbullrestoration.com. Um, you can email us uh, info at turnbullrestoration.com. Uh, we offer the opportunity to, if you have a serial number of a particular firearm and want to check to see if it's been here, you know, we do offer that up. Kind of as a no charge, uh, and for the most part, it's you know, yeah, it's been here or no, it's not. Um, yeah, sometimes cool. it creates some issues because we've we've had some guns that come in and, and just use as an engraving sample. You know, it's it's an original gun, but it's just an engraving sample. Um, but you know, there, there's there's some services we do offer for, for for everybody. That actually reminds me of one question I wanted to ask you, and <clears throat> you may or may not. I'm sure you have some stories, but you can disclose whatever. But it, we were talking about our our mutual friends, Puglisi's, and I know that 
Uh, John Puglisi's father, his dad, Jack, was famous for buying a Parker shotgun that was made for a Russian czar. And there's that was there was an article about it in the paper and that sort of thing. So my question to you is, have you had any famous guns or kind of remarkable stories behind guns that you've had in for restoration or anything come to mind like that? Uh, yeah, that... that that, uh, that story that Parker shotguns is, is really pretty interesting and uh, yeah um, <laughs> that was cool <laughs> uh, you know we've we've worked with some uh, some we work with Tom Solak. Uh, we built five or six guns for him over the years Gary Berghoff Raider O'Reilly we've sold him some pieces and traded for our work uh, you know uh, we've had some some famous actor people that have sent us in guns that uh, you know and just literally told them you don't touch it you know that this gun is is rare it's got documentation you know and, and even getting into you know deep cleaning leave it as is you know I've, I've worked on you know guns that uh, you know touched up little parts and pieces uh, you know this is back in uh, early 2000s that you you know have sold for you know six to, to seven figures um, it's it's interesting looking at the, the the guns over the years and what you've seen and, and had and and that uh, and uh, yeah John Puglisi's uh, you know great guy he's he's seen it he's extremely knowledgeable because he's he's my, he's my age and you know growing up with, with his dad and yeah and all the collectibles he knows the stuff's looks like he knows what it's supposed to look like he knows if somebody brings in something that's not right you know he looks at it and goes well you know what do you want with that well it's a nice original no it's not how do you know i've, I've been in the industry too long <laughs> yeah yeah john's an incredible guy yeah well that'll be a little bit of a tease because i am i am going to get down there and and do a podcast with those guys sometime soon so so we'll do that but in the meantime doug i i have to thank you for taking the time to talk with us on the project up podcast this has been informative i very much appreciate you taking the time supporting the work that we do over here and uh i hope uh hope to send some folks your way yeah great nick uh look to be uh look to get back with you and, and talk about other other projects down the road absolutely sounds good thank you doug yep thanks All right, that does it for this episode of the Project Up and Podcast. Thank you for listening, everybody. A quick reminder that the podcast is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, CZ USA, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Don't forget to leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, and share the podcast for your chance to win the Project Upland Podcast giveaway. And head over to projectupland.com for more of the Upland birds, dogs, guns, and gear that you love. Until we see you back here for the next episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own 
Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.